as we were passing the uh, the target after having dropped our bombs, we did catch uh, several bursts of flak uh, that hit all parts of the plane. Uh, it was from below, the up front where I was, uh, the I happened to sit on. We had flak uh, uh, jackets that we used to wear, but commonly we never wore them. We we would put them on the floor because uh, uh, if if you're going to get a burst from the side. Uh, most likelihood it would hit you in the head and that would be it anyway, but a burst from the bottom, uh, you could ward that off. So we always sat on our flak suits. This is Carl Schuster, who served on the crew of a B-17 Flying Fortress during World War II. He's talking about flak jackets, sleeveless jackets made of heavy fabric reinforced with steel. Flak jackets were worn as protection from flak, or German anti-aircraft artillery. Schuster describes his bomber getting hit by flak after a mission over Berlin and trying to get back to England. Uh, as we emerged uh, from the, uh, the target area, we did catch this heavy flak, uh, the uh, plexiglass in the nose, and, and uh, my flak suit got hit from underneath. Uh, uh, there was a piece of shrapnel an inch and a half long that hit, but it was pretty much spent by the time it hit us. But it was hit us enough that it uh, uh, in the pilot's compartment, it burst a hole up there and sh showered them with with uh, plexiglass. And uh, there was hardly a place in the plane that didn't have a hole in it. Well, the one man that got hit was kneeling down in the in the gunner's position in the waist, mm -hmm. and a piece of flak came through his calf of his leg, the front part, the back part, the back part, and the front part of his thigh. Our bombardier was a morticianer in private life and he was sort of our first aid man for the crew. So he grabbed a uh, oxygen uh, mask and uh, bottle and, and ran back to help the man and uh, put a tourniquet on and we got, we came back, uh, left the formation uh, as we went over to the North Sea and uh, uh, notified the base that we had a moon and a man on board. Uh, at that point obviously we didn't know how serious it was. We did need to uh, uh, wire in, uh, radio in our expected time of arrival because we were not coming in with the, with the main uh, group of uh, bombers from our air base. And uh, I recall the pilot wanting a, an ETA. And Schuster was 25 years old at the time, college educated and serving in the U.S. Army Air Forces in the European Theater of Operations. It was up to Schuster to determine when the bomber would arrive at his home base so that ambulances would be ready to tend to the injured gunner. We'll hear later what happened to his crewmate. Stories like this help us examine the human element when studying historical events like major wars and conflicts. While the contributions of those who make up the armed forces are recognized, the everyday intricacies, experiences, and stories that define their service are commonly lost or ignored. A sense of inspiration, respect, purpose, and awareness may result from exploring these past accounts and recognizing events and perspectives that may have otherwise gone unnoticed. The aim of this particular Spotlight podcast is not only to recognize the actions and accomplishments of Dr. Carl Schuster Jr. as a serviceman, but also as an individual. Raised in New Jersey, Schuster went to Rutgers College and after graduating in the class of 1942, went on to serve, like many of his peers, in World War II. He went to graduate school at Rutgers and later New York University and went on to become a marine biologist and the leading authority on the horseshoe crab. Welcome to the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. I am Patrick Mullen. The Rutgers Oral History Archives, ROHA for short, 
is dedicated to documenting the life stories of people and communities throughout Rutgers University and New Jersey. Roha makes those oral history interviews available to the public through our digital archive at oralhistory.ruckers.edu. This episode will shine a spotlight on Carl N. Schuster, who was interviewed by Kurt Peeler in 1994 and 1995. Dr. Carl Schuster Jr.'s family immigrated to the United States from Germany in 1819 and showcased a tradition of military service. His father served in the Navy during the First World War, while his mother was one of the original physical therapists during the war. She served in uniform, though he mentions how it was not an Army uniform. Only in recent years was she recognized as having served in the military. During World War I, his family was placed in a unique situation when participating within the conflict as German-Americans. Those who volunteered for military service often had to fight those with a shared cultural background and heritage in World War I. This phenomenon is prevalent within multiple interviews in Rojas' collection and represents a human aspect of the war that is often overshadowed or left unaddressed. War would later figure prominently in his life, as he went on to serve in the Army Air Force in Europe during the Second World War. Discussions at home during his upbringing reflected a failure on the part of American President Woodrow Wilson following World War I to establish lasting peace, which led to the rise of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Yeah, he did feel it was a mistake, but... Uh, uh... And he did feel that, that really, uh, if the armistice, after the armistice, the treaty had been different, that uh, we may have never seen a Hitler. Uh, he felt, uh, from a historical viewpoint, that uh, at least as far as he's concerned, that had Wilson not failed in his health, or whatever the problems were, if Wilson had vigorously prosecuted his original attempts. So Dad really were very critical of Wilson because he felt he, he let us down uh, by not following through and, and making sure that there was a just peace. Uh, because Wilson did have some good ideas, but it, it never came to the fruition that it should have. The United States never really got into the United Nations, or whatever they call it, the Nations. And uh, yeah, Dad blamed him for that and uh, felt uh, well, he laid it to the party, too. <laughs> yeah. So you can guess what his political affiliation yeah. might be. After being born in Vermont, Schuster grew up during the Great Depression in West Orange, New Jersey, an urban environment and later in the rural Trenton area, living in Hopewell. His father promoted an academic environment during his youth. The elder Schuster spent his career as a math educator, publishing a series of textbooks in the field of mathematics and contributing to three major textbook series. His father held a holistic view of mathematics, which shaped the academic nature of his family. While attending Rutgers from 1938 to 1942, Schuster joined the fraternity Chi Psi and played soccer, lacrosse, and boxed. He emphasized the common bond that exists among Rutgers students, no matter their social or economic backgrounds, uniting people among multiple societal castes. Rutgers was the only school he applied to. He describes the level of brotherhood and support that his fraternity provided him, granting him greater opportunities across campus and support when his father was ill. He also became the head coach of the freshman lacrosse team during his later years at Rutgers. He joined the ROTC program at Rutgers. ROTC stands for Reserve Officer Training Corps, an officer training program in the United States Armed Forces. Certain participants within the program receive a commission as an officer upon graduation, furthering their military service. With war on the horizon, it was his involvement within his fraternity that motivated him to join ROTC at Rutgers. I think almost everyone realized that, that there was a potential for war. And uh, well, I think that, that after you, you, you 
at a collegiate level and particularly active in sports and extracurricular activities and these things that you realize that uh, if there is a war you'd rather be an officer you'd rather be an officer and, and when you look back on it that's sort of an altruistic and selfish viewpoint but uh, also that did supply a lot of better of well-qualified people to the to the Corps. On Sunday, December 7, 1941, Japanese forces launched a surprise offensive throughout the Pacific that struck American bases at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and in the Philippines, Guam, Midway, and Wake Island. Call remembers the day of infamy. Pearl Harbor was a surprise in the sense that I remember the day that, that uh, this happened. We were up downstairs in the, uh, in the fraternity household lounging around. One room, boys were playing cards. and. Uh, the announcement came over the radio that the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. Everybody's looking around, where the heck is Pearl Harbor? What's this all about? And, and really, bombing Pearl Harbor it didn't ring a bell. I mean, as far as we were concerned, we had nothing to do with it at that point. Yeah. Until somebody said, oh my gosh, Pearl Harbor's on Honolulu. Then all of a sudden, boom! You know, then everybody was on top of the radio and, and atlases and everything else. But at first, uh, it, it was out of the blue, and we didn't connect Pearl Harbor directly to us. He quickly reported for service after graduation in 1942. Many members of the Rutgers College class of 1942 graduated and went right into the service. During World War II, 7,618 men and women of Rutgers served in the military. 23 members of the class of 1942 died in the war. Overall, 243 Rutgers alumni lost their lives during the conflict. They're memorialized at the class of 1942 World War II Memorial located on Voorhees Mall on the College Avenue campus at Rutgers, New Brunswick. In 1994, members of the class of 1942 founded the Rutgers Oral History Archives to acknowledge the contributions of veterans, Rutgers alumni, and other notable New Jerseyans to ensure their stories are preserved. Schuster was among the first to be interviewed by Roja. Schuster expected to join the infantry in the army. Yes, there was no doubt about you, you had no doubt that. Because uh, if you were going to into another branch, you'd already been tapped. Like uh, those that went into the Marine Corps already knew because their orders were cut almost immediately. Uh, so the, the one that done, we were trained for the infantry, and uh, that's where we were going. He spent time at Plattsburgh camps during the summers for ROTC. Plattsburgh camps were citizen military training camps, often employed by ROTC programs that were meant to foster civic engagement within military service in addition to streamlining mobilization efforts as the chances for war grew. After completing motor officer training, Schuster was given orders to report to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. He describes his job as... I had actually probably the, the best job a motor officer could have because I was assigned to headquarters company and the company was the outfit that uh, provided vehicle transport for the, as it said, headquarters of the division. So that my motor pool was responsible for the vehicles and drivers of the commanding general and his staff. Continuing his military service, he applied to and joined the Army Air Forces. After washing out of pilot training, he served as a navigator on a B-17 during the war. He additionally attended gunnery school. In the summer of 1944, Schuster was shipped overseas to England as a part of the B-17 replacement crew. Based in England, he participated in missions as a part of the 95th Bomb Group, 3rd Bomb Division of the 8th Air Force. The 8th Air Force undertook precise daylight strategic bombing of Nazi-occupied Europe from May 1942 to July 1945. 
Schuster himself flew in 27 missions, many as the lead plane navigator, in 1944 and 1945. Schuster acknowledged the risks and dangers associated with flying, notably the high casualty rate. I didn't have a romantic view, I just hadn't ever experienced anything like that before, and sure, that was dangerous, that's about as dangerous as one can get, really, when you think about it, but no, we weren't concerned about that. And I don't know, I don't know why it shouldn't be, but in, in those days, I don't recall really being all that concerned about combat. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen, there was nothing you could do about it. Schuster describes missions in which his crew was supporting Allied forces during the Battle of the Bulge. The battle otherwise known as the Ardennes Offensive, was the last major German offensive campaign on the Western Front during World War II. The battle lasted for five weeks in December 1944 and January 1945, and victory in the offensive for the Allies sealed Germany's fate. It was Nazi Germany's final major offensive in Western Europe. We're striking areas uh, that would have supplied support for the bulge. Uh, marshalling areas, airfields, mm -hmm. we did bomb airfields occasionally, bridges, to disrupt, mainly to disrupt uh, traffic flow mm -hmm. and uh, Air Force activities, the German Air Force. And, and some of these missions were, were deeper into Germany than others. Our bomb group had been the first to bomb Germany, so it had that title, but while we were there, they went back several times, and we happened to be on two of those missions. Schuster recognized the difficulties that were often associated with the accuracy of bombing tactics and the effectiveness of strategic bombing as a whole. In part, it was almost in relation to the difficulty of the target. Yeah. Difficulty being how much anti-aircraft, mm -hmm. how much threatening by the Air Force, uh, German Air Force one could expect, the length of the mission, how tired were you, the height at which you bombed, the higher you were, the less accurate you were, the mm -hmm. lower, obviously. Uh, the closer you were to the, the uh, site, and it, it was easier. The uh, 95th Bomb Group had, had a overall a good record. Schuster married in May of 1944 before being shipped overseas. He received the Distinguished Flying Cross in recognition of his military service. After the war, Schuster did graduate studies at Rutgers under Dr. Thurlow Nelson, a leading expert on oysters. He earned his Ph.D. at NYU and conducted research at the Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratory. At various stages of his career, Schuster was director of the University of Delaware Marine Laboratories, director of the Northeast Shellfish Sanitation Research Laboratory, worked for the Environmental Protection Agency, served as the chief environmental advisor to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and worked as an adjunct professor at the College of William and Mary. He was considered the leading authority in the world on the American horseshoe crab. In 2001, in recognition of Schuster's contributions to the field of horseshoe crab science and conservation, the Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission set aside hundreds of square miles in the Atlantic Ocean off the New Jersey and Delaware coasts as the Carl N. Schuster Jr. Horseshoe Crab Reserve. In 2000, he had an active role in launching an initiative in schools in the Delaware estuary that recognized the controversy regarding management surrounding horseshoe crabs. The resulting Green Eggs and Sand project featured the development of a comprehensive curriculum on horseshoe crabs for weekend teacher workshops throughout the Atlantic coast. When Schuster was 80, Harvard University asked him to write a book dedicated to the horseshoe crab. With his colleagues Jane Brockman and Robert Burlow, he co-edited The American Horseshoe Crab, which is considered the seminal work on the subject. Ultimately, Schuster and his wife each lived to be 100. They had five sons, George, Kenneth, Chris, Carl III, and Forrest, with the first four sons being two sets of twins born less than a year apart. Remember in the beginning when Schuster had to estimate the time of arrival in England to save the life of his injured crewmate? Well, he did it through dead reckoning.
This is the process of calculating one's position, especially at sea, by estimating the direction and distance traveled rather than by using landmarks, astronomical observations, or electronic navigation methods. Here's what Schuster remembers. I knew the direction we were flying, certainly, and what I did was to look down at uh, the ocean level and I could see which way the waves were moving. So I figured, okay, that's the way the uh, wind is blowing. Mm -hmm. uh, and to produce that level of white caps, whatever it was, you could estimate your, the wind speed from that. Well, we already knew what the wind speed was predicted to be and proved to be as we were flying. So I had those two pieces of data and the fact that we had just crossed over in the North Sea. So I had a geographical checkpoint. And uh, by drawing a line from there to the base and, and taking an average of the sea level direction and wind speed and the altitude wind speed, I had it. Mm -hmm. Figuring, well, I, we've got to go down, so that we'll go down through that entire air column, and regardless, mm -hmm. it, it should average out. Well, I'll be darned if it didn't pan out. I, we got back to the air base just at the time when the ambulance was circling the field to get in a position to receive us. And I think I missed it all the way from leaving Germany at the, uh, at the seacoast by two minutes, less than two minutes, which, which is a pretty good seat of the pants uh, navigation considering that we, we did leave, uh, mm -hmm. uh, did uh, descend uh, all the way to uh, sea level before we got to the base. So that was about the only time I really did any good navigation uh, as a uh, dead reckoning pilotage navigator and a wing crew. Thank you for listening to the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. I am Patrick Mullen. Subscribe to the Roha podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on SoundCloud. Follow Roha on major social media outlets at RU Oral History. The Rutgers Oral History Archives is dedicated to documenting the life stories of people and communities throughout Rutgers University and New Jersey. Roja makes these oral history interviews available to students and scholars at no charge through our digital archive at oralhistory.ruckers.edu. To support Roja, visit our website and select support on the main menu. This podcast was written and narrated by Patrick Mullen. Fact-checking was done by Patrick Mullen and Kate Rizzi. Sound engineering is by Patrick Mullen. The podcast is produced by Patrick Mullen, Kate Rizzi, and Sean Ellingworth. The two-part oral history interview of Carl N. Schuster Jr. is a part of the Rutgers Oral History Archives and can be found online at oralhistory.ruckers.edu. This podcast has been recorded in the Rutgers College Class of 1948 Sound Booth, located at the Rutgers School of Arts and Sciences building at 1 Spring Street.